0: Hey, everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my guest is Phil Metz. Phil is a three time collegiate national mountain bike champ who has podiumed at several U.S. national championships and has competed in UCI World Cup events as well. His popular YouTube channel, Skills with Phil, has more than a quarter of a million subscribers. Thanks for joining us, Phil.
1: Thanks for having me. It's uh, great to be here.
0: Let's get started with your background. What is sort of your mountain biking background? How do you get into the sport?
1: Yeah, so that's, it can be a long or short answer, depending on how I go about this.
0: <laughs> well, you're a young guy. It can't be that long, right?
1: Well, I, I've been, ra- <laughs> I've been <laughs> racing since I was five, so. Oh, wow. There's some history. Yeah. I raced BMX very competitively since I was five. And, you know, in 1999, I was, or 2000, I was nine and I finished uh, eighth in world championships.
0: Whoa! At nine years old? Correct. Okay, I didn't even know they had world championships for that age.
1: Yeah, it's pretty crazy, and it's huh. it was super competitive. Yeah, I bet. I ended up moving around quite a bit, but I moved to New Hampshire after in because uh, we were actually living in France at the time. Funny enough. Wow. And so we moved to New Hampshire, and once I moved to New Hampshire, like the amount of BMX tracks in that area. Or like next to none. There was like one or two. wasn't the best quality, and it was pretty far away. So, at that point, my interest in uh, racing BMX had started to fall off a little bit. Mm-hmm. I'd been doing it for quite a long time at that point, ten years, and I, I was looking for something else. Yeah. And so I took up uh, BMX park. Uh, I went to Camp Woodward for a few summers, which was an awesome experience, but. I never really clicked with the whole like tricks like bar spins, tail whips, all those kinds of things. Like never really like did anything for me, Hmm. but I could go really big. I could do like a big transfer that no one else was doing. Yeah. And that might stem from like my background as a BMX racer and as in BMX dirt jumping. Hmm. Um, I like that continuation of movement, the flow that you get from dirt jumps. I was still looking for that competitive aspect and my dad had bought a mountain bike And it was a, you know, I look back at it like it was a cross-country bike, but it was a specialized enduro, So it was a pretty burly bike for the time, but he just rode it mainly doing cross-country stuff. Uh And so I'd kind of like play around with that in the yard. And uh, eventually we took it to some trails and I ran into some local downhillers Uh and they're like, yeah, follow us. And I kept up with them. No problem on that bike. They're like, And so they were like, yeah, you might want to consider getting into racing, (laughs) uh, which I was totally into, but the price of getting a bike or sort of like the cost of entry for mountain biking was astronomical compared to BMX, which can be expensive. So yeah, I kind of lucked out meeting the right people at the right time. They told us about the right mountains to go to, and we ended up uh, doing some research uh, renting a bike from Killington, you know, I enjoyed it quite a bit. So I was like, yeah, this is what I want to do. Uh, so that winter, we ended up uh, buying a bike off eBay, which for us at the time was like a huge cost. And, like, yeah. you know, for like, compared to what other people spend on their first mountain bike and what we spent on our first mountain bike, there's like a pretty big difference. I think we ended up spending like $2,000 used.
0: But yeah, that's still a lot of money. I mean, most people that aren't into the sport, they're like, are you crazy?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um and you know, for us that that was a sticker shock. Like we were looking at yeah. you know, 1000 maybe. <laughs> right. And so that essentially got me into the sport and you know, my BMX skills transferred over really quickly. So at the places that had a little bit more man-made features, at those races, i do really well. Mm-hmm. But the ones that had more wet, technical, rocky features, I w- was still running 45 PSI in my tires, <laughs> and I couldn't understand why I was falling.
0: <laughs> right.
1: So, yeah, that's kind of the abridged story. Um, there's a lot more details in between.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, so you raced, at, I'm guessing this was high school when you're starting to race and then um you ended up going to school in North Carolina, right? Was that cycling related your choice and where you went to college and everything?
1: Yeah, uh it was 100% cycling related. That was not directly out of high school. Okay. So, I directly out of high school, my my SAT scores were eh, you know, they weren't the greatest. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I was really good at like tinkering with things. Like I took like almost every elective I could. So like from like sewing to culinary arts to machine tool electronics. Like nice. I really liked playing around with things and uh-huh. just the idea of having a desk job never really sat well with me. But <laughs> I was also pretty competitive, being a racer. But I knew I wasn't good enough to make a career out of it. Mm-hmm. So. I kind of took a step back for racing for one year and went to culinary arts school. And actually, I have a degree in culinary arts, worked in the industry for a while, stopped racing. But like, I actually stopped riding completely for a little bit. Oh, wow. And that kind of took its toll on me. I started gaining some weight and just like, being generally unhappy with my situation. Mm -hmm. So I still had that competitive edge. So I was like, all right, well, uh, I need to backtrack a little bit. When you are eighteen, you go from being an expert to you either go pro or you go like nineteen twenty nine. Okay. I didn't know if I felt ready to race into pro ranks, mm-hmm. but since especially since I'd taken a year off, but I was like, I right, whatever, uh, I'll just you know take a gamble and like get my pro upgrade if I can, mm-hmm. and see how I can do uh, like some races this year. This is two thousand nine. Okay. I did pretty well. Um, I ended up, by the end of the year, I had my first pro win, which was pretty crazy. Wow, yeah. I, I will kind of uh, toot my own horn. Uh, Richie Reed was on the podium, but he was <laughs> much, much younger than any of us. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So that kind of got the drive to race back in my blood, and I started doing a lot more racing. And then in 2012, I had a really good year. I uh, finished third at a few nationals uh, on the podium with like, Aaron Gwynn. Oh, wow. Uh, And those came out of nowhere. I I was certainly not expecting to perform that well at those races, but I didn't be a lot of other big names. I was like, okay, maybe I actually can make a career out of racing. Mm -hmm. And frankly, up until then, I didn't know any of like the big World Cup pro names. Like I couldn't really care less about the World Cup at the time. I just knew it happened and it was cool to watch it here and there but it wasn't something i was like avidly watching i just like to ride my bike (laughs) yeah but now like i was in a like position i needed to kind of know who my competitors were anyway i ended up getting injured it had uci points from the previous year okay and and so that year i was supposed to race my first world cup and so that would have been windham and mount st anne a week before uh windham I ended up breaking my collarbone out in Angel Fire at at a national. Oh, wow. So that was a big blow. But, you know, injuries come with the territory. Mm -hmm. Up until then, I'd never broken a bone. So, you know, I, I was overdue.
0: Yeah. <laughs> That's one way to look at it.
1: So I heroed up at the end of the year. I went out to Norway They had a world cup out there and it was the last one of the season. And I was like, you know, I might as well use up my UCI points for this race mm-hmm. or at least make use of them because they expire after a year. Okay. And you know, my third practice run there, I clip a tree and break my hand.
0: Oh, jeez.
1: So I was like, okay, this is two bones in one year. Like, This is quite unlucky, but whatever. Um, You know, my season's over. I'll just, you know, kick some butt next year and whatnot. Yeah. I ended up getting a, like, at the time for me, it was a really good sponsorship deal with Evil. It was the first time I'd gotten a free bike um, and, like, you know, my helmet, my pads were all free, which is Mm -hmm. the first time any of that's happened up until then. Yeah. You know, I've gotten, you know, maybe a uh, discount on a frame, maybe, (laughs) like, a free set of bars. Yeah. And I was really looking forward to the season. This is 2013, but in 2013, I once again broke my hand right before the first national. Oh no. So within one year, I broke three bones and that was kind of a a wake-up call to me. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile... I had also kind of started to gather the importance of having an online presence on Instagram, which I didn't have until like 2013.
0: That's pretty early, though, for Instagram. I mean, there weren't a whole lot of people on it in 2013, as I recall.
1: Yeah, maybe I did have it before that, but I certainly didn't use it. I didn't have any friends using it. So it was mm-hmm. just like an app that was on my phone that just didn't do anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I started learning the importance about social media, uh, especially from the owner of the, uh, of evil bikes. So I started uh, looking at the idea of, well, I would like to make some videos. I don't have the budget to hire like videographer. Mm-hmm. And I hate asking people to do things for free. Right. <laughs> so I wanted to like teach myself how to use a camera. So went on the YouTubes and like you know, how to use a camera, how to get slow-mo and all, all, everything that would come to your mind if you've never used a camera. Mm-hmm. So I ended up getting a GoPro uh, doing a few runs at Highland Mountain Bike Park because I n- knew that Highland had a lot of cool trails. It's my local park, but nobody had done any good videos of the runs at Highland. Okay. But they also didn't use good keywords to like make it findable through search results yeah and so i didn't really know what seo was at the time but like through this i learned that oh yeah you want to use relevant keywords and relevant tags i was like okay that's kind of (laughs) interesting and i still had no idea what i really wanted to do with my life like racing was starting to be like hmm, getting injured a lot
0: <laughs> right
1: i'm kind of a closet geek in some ways like i really love like technology the internet and computers maybe i should like become a web developer hmm. these are like things that were going through my mind and yeah i didn't know where i was going but fast forward uh, my relationship with evil fell through and i didn't have a ride for 2014 okay And it was at that point where I was like, do I want to continue racing and just kind of like feel like I'm playing like catch up and trying to catch like the carrot? Right. Or do I want to take a step back and figure out a better path? Yeah. So I knew there were scholarships available for um, collegiate cycling teams. Mm -hmm. I had looked at it out of high school, but it didn't interest me that much at the time. Mm Mm-hmm. But now that I s- started to kind of understand my relationship with bikes and the industry a little bit more, I knew that I wanted to do something in terms of marketing. Okay. And obviously, I'd posted a few uh, GoPro videos on YouTube, and I was like, okay, YouTube's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in 2014, I, like in January or so, I applied uh, to Lee's McCready College and I didn't put that much weight into the idea it was just like
2: mm-hmm.
1: I need options I'm gonna see what can happen yeah and you know like a little while later we get like a pamphlet in the mail I thought it was just some like random like advertising like you know I was <laughs> like okay whatever I didn't open it for like you know two weeks or so but it turns out <laughs> wow. that that was it, the scholarship proposal that the school had sent over
0: oh wow <laughs> You didn't miss the deadline, did you?
1: I was very, very, very (laughs) close. (laughs) So it was actually my dad who uh, opened it for me at the time. He was like, he was sick of seeing it just like standing around like in a pile of letters. (laughs) He was like, yeah, you might want to look at this. So uh, it wasn't a full ride or anything, but it was enough to make the idea of going to school pretty tempting. So literally within an hour, we're like, yeah, I'm doing it. Awesome.
0: It's very decisive.
1: Yeah, uh, I, <laughs> those kind of opportunities happen quite a bit. I I don't really like to think things through too often. I'm just like if I see opportunity, I'll take it.
0: Yeah, spoken like a true like gravity rider, right? I mean, when you're on the trail, like you're making split second decisions all the time, and you don't have a chance to be indecisive.
1: A- absolutely, but funny enough, I'm pretty like in many regard like aspects of my life, I'm pretty apprehensive to making big decisions.
0: Yeah. Cause you don't want to get injured. You don't want to break your hand. Right. So it goes both ways. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so anyway, I, you know, I was like, okay, let, let, let's let go back to school. We'll, we'll go back to school for marketing. And, uh, you know, I don't have a downhill bike, so I'll have to get a downhill bike again. And, you know, we'll do some racing, uh, while at school, maybe I'll like it again. Uh, who knows?
0: That's a cool back to school list, by the way, you know, you're like back to school shopping, you're like downhill bike, need one of those.
1: Yeah, uh, it, it wasn't a bad thing to have on your back to school list. <laughs> I ro- wrote it. Uh, I wasn't expecting much from the collegiate season, mm-hmm. but I, you know, I was still kind of hoping I'd do pretty well at collegiate nationals. Um, mm-hmm. For collegiate cycling, that's the only event that really matters. You have a bunch of races throughout the season, and the way they are organized, they're super fun. You get to meet a lot of like cool people from parts of the country that you would not have had a chance to meet otherwise.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: But the structure is just kind of like, you know, sometimes you'll go to an event and the course is like, you know, you know, there's like 10 feet of elevation drop for a downhill course. (laughs) And they're actually using part of that trail for the uphill and a cross country race that same day. So it's one of those (laughs) things where it really depends on the venue, but uh, some races are super fun. Some races are super not fun. Mm Mm-hmm. But Collegiate Nationals is a legit race. And a lot of the other top racers there are also pros because in uh, Collegiate Cycling, uh, it's not NCAA sanctioned. Okay. It's regulated by USA Cycling, the racing governing body of uh United States. Right. And they acknowledge the fact that most pro racers really aren't making a professional income. They're just racing at a professional level.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: So they acknowledge that, and they allow professionals to race uh, collegiate. Okay. So
0: you can be sponsored and everything when you're in college? You can have, you know, brands give you bikes and, okay.
1: Kate Courtney was uh, going to school for Stanford, actually, while I was racing. And so, like, she had a full ride with Specialized. But I think something happened where Specialized kind of quietly asked her not to race collegiate races anymore because it kind of looked a little bit weird. Okay. Which I, I totally get because... Yeah. And so going to the actual race, I ended up winning not only the downhill, and I won by a pretty large margin. It was like two or three seconds on a two-minute course. Oh, wow. And these were against some like pretty well-respected riders in the US. Yeah. And then not only that, but the next day I went on to win collegiate dual solemn national championships. Wow. <laughs> so I set myself a pretty high bar for my first collegiate nationals.
0: Yeah. I bet your coaches and and the people who offered you the scholarship were pretty stoked.
1: Oh yeah, they they, they got their money's worth. Yeah. <laughs> so that is essentially what caused me to get back into racing again. I was like, okay, maybe I should give it one more like really like serious go. Mm-hmm. It helped that a friend's bike shop was willing to sponsor me and provide me with a free like loaner bike, two loaner bikes for the year, and. So going into 2015, that's when I, so I qualified 24th at the Wyndham uh, World Cup, but that's also that right before that is when I put put out my first Skills with Phil video. (laughs) Yeah. So I had these two like really interesting things going. I had like the YouTube aspect because from that video alone, I realized like, oh, that's the future. Mm Mm-hmm. And the racing part of me, like, you know, the competitive part of me was like, mm, maybe I should really consider racing.
0: Yeah. Well, it's good to have options. I mean, it sounds like that, that was your intent all along was to kind of have different things you could fall back on or just kind of see which one took off. Right?
1: Yeah. It, like I, I just had a bunch of different interests, so you're absolutely right. I'm like, it was hard for me to give up on one one to like for another.
0: Yeah. Well, let's hope you don't get tired of skills with Phil cause a lot <laughs> of people really like that. So, I want to talk to you about that. I mean, a lot of people probably know you best for that these days, um, but not many mountain bikers on YouTube have a legit mission statement like you do, which is to help empower people with the tools necessary to explore the world through bikes. So to me, that sounds like a super lofty goal. So what what does that mean to you and how do you plan to uh, accomplish that?
1: Yeah, I've kind of revised that a little bit to essentially say, just help people have more fun on bikes.
0: Yeah, that's a worthy goal.
1: Because I I think the other one sounded a little bit too
0: pretentious. (laughs) (laughs) Not to Um, me. I mean, it's a a lot of, I think a lot of people are trying to do the same thing and in in different ways. So um, yeah, I'm really interested to know sort of what your vision is for that.
1: So I I guess my guiding light in many ways is like sometime in the future, I want to open up my own bike park skills training facility. Okay that is the ultimate goal how i'm going to get there i think i'm on the right track but the business side of things even though i went to school for business i suck i suck at numbers i don't like managing people i'm very good at doing my own thing but i'm not good at overseeing like people's daily routines making sure like every, like things are accounted like for
0: right that can be boring a lot of times <laughs> honestly right
1: yeah <laughs> no, honestly yeah and so like the things that interest me are the things that are a little bit more flashy and like easy to obtain so right now I knew to get to that point and this stems from being a racer and marketing myself as a racer but I also knew that the internet was like a really solid platform to use as a stepping stone stone to get to your next position Mm-hmm. And so I saw plenty of other people who rose up through uh, YouTube and whatnot, and then they could finally like use that and pivot that uh, on that to uh, do something even bigger.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, who is your inspiration? What I mean, are these people in the bike industry, or, or are we talking about like beyond bike on YouTube?
1: Beyond bike. Honest, honestly, honestly, I, I I watch a lot of mountain bike videos on YouTube, but like, especially at the time most of the videos i watched were things in the film industry in the tech industry things pretty much completely unrelated to bikes
0: (laughs) yeah what you're saying reminds me my kids are into dude perfect right now i don't know if you've seen their channel (laughs) but i mean it's like it's like you say it's crazy how they're able to take that and turn it into something just massive i mean it's a it's a brand and it's, they've got, you know, their own facilities and who knows what else they're doing these days. I mean, it sounds like, like you're right. That's a really awesome launch platform.
1: I guess if you were to ask me at the time who my biggest influence was in in that respect, it was uh, Philip DeFranco who, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with, I'm not, he's one of the original OG YouTubers, as I like to call them. (laughs) And, he would do kind of a news recap at the end of the week or no, at the end of the day. And he obviously put his uh, own opinion into things, but he tried to approach things a little bit more neutrally and maybe cover some topics that weren't necessarily being covered. And they would range from like entertainment to more hard hitting topics. Mm -hmm. I noticed that I didn't know the guy. I didn't, you know, I've never met him, but after watching, His videos for a while, I was starting to feel connected to him.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Like he was a friend. And I was like, this is a very interesting phenomenon. And I didn't watch TV. I didn't really care for reality shows, Mm -hmm. but it was starting to like dawn on me. Like there's something here. Like, I don't know what it is, but there's something here.
0: Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, so like you said, you, you posted your first video back in 2013 or so. So what, what what have you sort of learned over the years since you've
1: been doing it? It's funny. I've probably learned a lot when you put me on a spot like that. It's hard to like <laughs> say, oh, yeah, I've learned this. So anything, you know, I, if I'm going to focus on myself a little bit, one of the big things I learned was like how I spoke was a little bit off-putting. Hmm. Just because I grew up with a little bit of a speech impediment that I – so I had to focus on myself, like trying to enunciate and all those kinds of things. Yeah. But not only that, I noticed that like, I learned a lot about marketing, how to use a camera, Mm -hmm. a little bit of web development along the way.
0: What about topics? I mean, how did you have you evolved sort of how you come up with topics? And have you found certain topics are more popular than others?
1: Yes. And uh, that's a great thing you brought up. So what I noticed is from, I try to analyze myself and how I use things. Mm -hmm. And if I'm doing it, there's a good chance there are other people who are also in this, you know, with like 7 billion people in the world, there's a chance, a very good chance that a lot of other people are also experiencing this same thing. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I was noticing is, you know, when I was using YouTube, it was mainly for how to do this, how to do that, how to do this. Right. And... At the time, there weren't any mountain bike specific channels for that. You, yeah. GMBN wasn't quite around yet. I think it was still GCN before they split off.
0: Okay, yeah,
1: and they might have had some tutorials. Uh, a few other bike mag might have had a you know a few tutorials, but there wasn't a consistent channel dedicated to mountain biking. And at the time, most companies were still seeing YouTube as. This place where you put up a video and then you take that video and you host it on your website.
0: Mm -hmm, Right.
1: They weren't thinking of it as a YouTube first. In fact, if you looked at the comments for those videos, the commenters and the channel owner would have like no interaction. Mm -hmm. And I noticed as a viewer myself, that was a little off-putting. It's like, oh, they don't really care about what's going on here. Right. So... When I was looking at all these how-to-use-a-camera videos, I was noticing that there's a community around like the film industry mm-hmm. or the amateur filmmaking in- industry. Yeah. I was like, I wonder if that's possible with mountain biking, but it just didn't feel like there was enough users uh, adopting or using the internet at, the, at that time.
0: Mm-hmm. And this is, this is before Seth too. I mean, a lot of people probably know Seth's bike hacks and I've heard his story as well. And it's, it's kind of similar. I mean, you guys maybe got started kind of the same time and kind of identified the same opportunity, right?
1: Yeah. And I think we have very, like, in some ways we're very similar and we're also very different at the same time. Because mm-hmm. we both lived on YouTube in our own little bubble.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Because like there wasn't this like people like, would find one channel and that was a channel you went to because you didn't know about like, you know, it was like voyaging from, what was it, Spain or or Europe to like the Americas. Like, you didn't know about that other continent. Right. (laughs) And so, you know, in in that process, I ended up discovering his, uh, one of his videos and i was like, oh, this guy's doing something very similar to me in a totally different way. This is pretty cool. So, I ended up reaching out to him, uh, my sophomore year of school and we ended up doing a little bit of a collaboration and like that was the first time I met anybody from online the online world. <laughs> and it was like it was a very weird because, like, what if this dude's a totally weirdo? Um <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's how it was like in the real old days, you know, like when we when we started single tracks, like in the nineties, that was back in the time where it was like don't meet up with people that you meet online. Don't like (laughs) post your real name, like none of that stuff. Yeah, I totally get what you're saying.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so uh, it it was a total weird experience, uh, but, you know, I'm glad it happened. And so backtracking a little bit, it it was mainly looking at how I used the internet at the time. And I used that to kind of identify things that other people were probably also uh, using the internet for. Mm Mm-hmm. Or especially YouTube, and so uh, I was like, I, "Man, I know I'm good enough to do a lot of these things, but like teaching somebody how to do things is a completely different beast."
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: And I have no formal coaching, uh, like uh, training. Mm-hmm. And I, I would say I'm probably not the best coach in a group setting, <laughs> or, or even even like an in-person uh, setting. I'm I'm very good at showing people things through video because I have a chance to go to a bunch of different locations. show a bunch of different variables.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you do a lot of takes? I mean, does it, does it take a lot to, to get it right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Cause a lot of times like I'll go out and film and, uh, since I'm filming myself 90% of the time, like maybe I didn't set the camera to the like, right setting and like everything's totally blown out or I go out there and I did this, did something funny. And like, the, like, you know, I'm not actually showing the movement that I want to show. Yeah. So yeah, I, I do a lot of takes. I'm getting better. I'm starting to have an understanding of like how to streamline my process, but it's still a very convoluted process. Like I will take a week or two weeks to do a skills video. Cause I'll go out film, mm-hmm. think I have a direction that I want to go with the video and then realize huh, I don't like any of that footage. <laughs> Let me go back out and refilm everything in a different scenario that's showcasing something similar, but a little bit more specific. Hmm. I don't know if that makes any sense, but it's like, it's like a rough draft. You revise a rough draft, you go back out and add to it. Yeah. And it's a process of you know, watching, revising, editing.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm familiar with the process for articles, but I can imagine that doing that for a video, that's a lot more time consuming, a lot more difficult for sure.
1: Yeah, it's one of the reasons why I don't, you know, I do skills videos, but the majority of my videos aren't specifically skills videos. When I do a skill video, I try to put a lot of effort. And maybe identify stuff that no one else is talking about because you know for the manual for example I was watching a bunch of other tutorials I'm like yeah I I was getting frustrated because there's some things that I felt like were being overlooked
2: Hmm. yeah
1: so that that's kind of how I started the channel and like figured out how to like what videos to make is just from analyzing what I personally would look for you know if I'm searching for how to use a camera, there's probably plenty of people doing that with a bike.
0: Yeah. Well, your, your most popular video so far involves riding a Walmart mountain bike down (laughs) a downhill run. So how'd you come up with that idea? And why do you think the video resonates with so many people?
1: That was a little bit of the perfect storm. You can never plan a viral video. And I I didn't expect that video to go viral, but I got very lucky with that one. Mm -hmm. And so at the time, it was pretty popular in skateboarding and BMX to go to Walmart, you know, take one of their bikes and see like what happens to it. it. It's just at the time, no one else had really done it. And everyone's kind of curious, like, well, how good or bad are these bikes in department stores?
0: Yeah. Why do you think they're curious, though? I mean, do you think it's because people are, are starting out like you and they're like, man, you know, I'd love to try mountain biking, but gosh, the bikes are so expensive. Like, could I get away with a Walmart bike?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there's the aspect coming from the veteran riders, like who have experienced quality parts, who want to see how like poor something like that may hold up on the trail.
0: Yeah. They want to make themselves feel better. They're like, oh, well, this (laughs) is why I paid a lot for my bike.
1: Uh, Exactly. And, And then you have the other group of people who just want to like see like, well, I really, really want to do big drops. I need a full suspension bike, but I don't have $2,000. Uh, what can I get for $200? Mm-hmm. And so I think you have the to two groups and not only that, but frankly, seeing someone who's pretty good at their craft, doing something outside of the norm is pretty interesting.
0: Yeah. When you're kind of, you're humbling yourself. I mean, you're, you're a great rider and people are like, man, there's no way I could ever ride like Phil, but you're kind of bringing yourself down a notch and like making it more accessible to people, maybe.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I I definitely see there's so many riders who are better than me. So, But I also know that a lot of veteran riders tend to like, you get in this mindset like, oh, anything under a certain price range is crap. Mm-hmm. You should never think about getting something. And it's nice to actually take a step back and test out the like lower end stuff to see like, Hey, is it actually crap or is some of this stuff actually pretty decent? Yeah. Cause I, I know like in terms of like film gear, I keep going back to film gear. Cause it's like one kind of hobby that I've learned that I'm still like pretty like amateur at.
0: Mm-hmm. And the gear is expensive, like mountain biking.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I, I get put off when I'm like looking for a new lens and people are like, Oh, you don't want to spend anything less than $2,000. Cause, uh, you know, bouquet is absolute crap. I'm like, I don't <laughs> care about that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to notice that. I'm not that good.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: So w- was, was there kind of like a certain point? I mean, was this video where your channel started to take off or have you seen sort of more of a gradual build throughout the years?
1: It was building before that. That video kind of gave it a uh, stimulus package.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: And it really came out of nowhere. It, I was literally going to go to that race anyway. And on the way there, I passed by Walmart and I knew I had a gift card for... <laughs> that I had like, sometimes they like, for a race, instead of giving you cash, it'll pay you out in a gift card.
0: Okay, a Walmart gift card, huh?
1: Not a Walmart gift card. Just like
0: that oh, was a Visa or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay.
1: <laughs> and so I always end up letting, like, forgetting about those cards. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I still have money on this card. I wonder if I can go to Walmart and find something, like, for, like, to take down a run at this bike park. Yeah. And Seth had already done his Walmart bike series. So I was, I definitely wasn't the first mountain biker to do a Walmart bike series or bike video, Mm -hmm. but I was the first person to take it to a bike park as far as I know, and really test it on a, you know, a legit jump line.
0: Yeah. And you're a legit rider too. I mean, that's what made it different. You know, Seth, Seth's a very good rider, but he, he was never, you know, racing at the level that you're at. So I think that's what made it really cool, at least for me
1: yeah um like Seth is a surprisingly good rider like the things you like see him do like you know, like for how tall he is like you'll bunny hop like way higher than you ever expect <laughs> but like you said like he came from more of a street your max background and mm-hmm. for some reason racing gives you a little bit more credibility uh, or just like competitions in general give you a little bit more sh- cred yeah you know whether that's right or wrong It's one of the things people look at.
0: Yeah, that's how the sport is. Yeah.
1: Funny enough, that weekend, I ended up winning the pro race. (laughs) Wow. It was a pro downhill race. And I kind of probably like ticked a few of the other riders off because when I went up to the podium, I... I took the Walmart bike as my podium bike
0: (laughs) (laughs) sponsored by Walmart.
1: (laughs) So if you, if you go on pink bike somewhere from like that race, there is a a podium of me on the top step with a Walmart bike.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Nice. That's awesome. And, and how, I mean, did that video too, was it, was it just YouTube like referring traffic to it or was it picked up by like other media outlets or what sort of made that one go viral? Do you think?
1: Okay, so the reason why it went viral—I mean, the title, entitled uh, the name of the bike alone.
0: Yeah, title is huge.
1: Like Huffy, Huffy is known for like not being like the greatest brand ever, but you know, a lot of people know about it. <laughs> yeah. So people know who uh, Huffy is. Right. The name of the bike was Carnage, so <laughs> I I didn't have to like really try hard to make a really sensational sounding title. Yeah. And so. You know, the fact that I ended up crashing in the video kind of was a double entendre, like with uh, like carnage, like,
0: yeah. And people love the crash videos too. They, if they hear there's a crash, they're going to watch it until they find it.
1: So like, it was a perfect title and then Seth had done his Walmart video. So I was probably getting some uh, like related video uh, search traffic from his videos Mm -hmm. and obviously I Being a like, professional racer, I had my group of friends who shared it with their group of friends, and it ended up getting picked up by the like Facebook or online group uh, Outdoor Mountain Bike Retailer, online or Outdoor uh, Bike Retailer, or whatever it's called. Mm-hmm. And so it circulated around there. Then things like Outdoor Magazine, uh, I think it was posted on Gizmodo at the time. It was posted on... Uh, oh, wow. I don't think wired, but, uh, it was posted on, uh, some tech site in a pretty like established tech site. Wow. <laughs> it, 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 got like some of the weirdest like traffic I've ever seen, but it, uh, it was cool. I, it was, yeah, but I knew it was going to be like a short lived, like, you know, the vo- like search volume or the view volume was going to spike and then go down really quickly. Yeah. But what I did not account for that is was going to be periodically recirculated, right? And so every once in a while, I'll see like a big jump in numbers. Like where's like where are people coming from?
0: <laughs> huh, that's interesting. So yeah, I mean your your next most popular videos though, uh, each with about a million views. One of them over a million. The the next closest one, almost a million now, is about skills, which is what your channel is about, and. I think it's interesting. Your take on mountain biking skills and doing tricks seems like super approachable compared to some of the other ones out there. So is there a certain type of rider or group that you're targeting when you create videos, skills videos specifically?
1: I I mean, if you, if you look at it in terms of like a triangle, uh, you have a large pool of beginner riders
2: mm-hmm. yeah,
1: and then you have a smaller amount of experienced beginner riders and then if you up you have like the intermediate riders Mm -hmm. and then you know all the way at the top you have like the the, like pros or veterans the fills yeah (laughs) whatever you want to like like label that as and those people aren't like people at the top aren't searching for anything yeah the people at the bottom are right because they're the ones who are new to a certain topic and they're, they want to learn about it. Right. So I I would say I focus my stuff a little bit more on the more lesser experienced writers, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, I try to keep everybody entertained. Yeah. Um, I will try to show variations of a certain thing that, you know, is more advanced. Mm -hmm. I also think a lot of people can benefit from revisiting the very basic skills because yeah. even when I was racing professionally in 2012, and I had some really good results, my body position on the bike was awful. And I didn't realize it at the time. I was just leaning on my handlebars, but I could shift my weight around where I could still ride pretty well. Mm-hmm. But I was wondering why I went over the bars more often than other riders. Yeah. yeah, I, I really think revisiting some of the basics is A, important to me as like, you know, a growing or develop still, I still consider myself developing rider, mm-hmm. but frankly, there is more people who would benefit from it.
0: Yeah. For sure. I mean, it seems too that a lot of your videos, um, you know, I've got, I've got younger kids and it seems like some of the stuff is geared even toward them. You know, I mean, kids that are like just starting out. Um, one of my favorites is the mini ramps, uh, that you've built <laughs> and seeing that. And I was like, Oh man, I want to, I got to build some of those. Like that's genius. Are you, are you targeting or are you finding, I guess that your viewers are fit in a certain age group or, or are you reaching beginners sort of of all ages?
1: I would say of all ages, in fact, really my, the amount of viewers I have under 18, it's a substantial amount, but my, I think my biggest group of people is in between like 30 and 40.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's mountain biking. I I think we see the same as well, but, and, and, a lot of people seem to get into the sport at that point, you know, they have, I guess they have a little bit more money and, Maybe some extra free time and yeah, yeah. That's, we're all we're all beginners at some point, I guess.
1: That's about the time I feel like, uh, especially in you know in this day and age, where in your career you finally have a house and you have you know some extra income to finally be able to afford that hobby that you've been looking at for so long.
0: Right. Yeah, and and I think you're you're totally right too that by keeping the the videos really approachable, but also showing some really cool stuff. It like inspires people to say, Hey, you know, I want to be able to do that. I want to be at that top level. Um, but, but they recognize that they need sort of those base level skills that you're showing. So that's really cool. What do do you think is the most difficult mountain bike skill to master?
1: Well, for me, like I, I would say I've only just finally learned how to wheelie.
0: Oh Yeah. Yeah, people find that very surprising,
1: and I think you know some people are gonna rag on me a little bit because how do you define knowing how to do something? Mm -hmm. Um, So I I could lift my front wheel up, I could wheelie, you know, parking spot spot, but I couldn't consistently hold a wheelie for a long time, Hmm. and so that's what I considered knowing how to wheelie, and I couldn't do that. And only this year did like a sitting down wheelie finally. Click. Yeah. And, um, you know, maybe not every wheelie, but I consist, I can consistently go 100, 200 feet, mm-hmm. um, sometimes more. And so that to me is like a pretty big milestone. So it really depends on where you're coming from because you see plenty of kids who have never ridden a bike, mastered a wheelie in one week.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And, you know, like, here like is me I've raced professionally for a while and I couldn't really
0: yeah yeah well I guess I think that's maybe what I see and what others see in your videos as well and and you said it that you see yourself as still learning a lot of things and trying to progress yourself and so it's not like hey look at me like I know how to do everything let me show you how to do it it's more it's almost like in some cases people are learning along with you which I think is really cool
1: Yeah, for sure. I I think there's, there's a fine balance because you, you want to be credible. Right. And so every once in a while you have to like throw in a clip of you doing something that like, whoa, establishes yourself (laughs) as a credible rider. But at the same time, you got to show that you're also human. Like Mm -hmm. there's a lot of things I don't know how to do on a bike. Yeah. And so we relate to people who have flaws. Mm-hmm. Um, I know when I watch other videos and I see someone talking, maybe they talk a little bit funny, but it doesn't bother me. Like they're just, you know, they're giving me good information and, mm-hmm. you know, I, I actually find their flaws to be endearing.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, it makes it human. I mean, it makes, like you said too, with, with your sort of inspiration, you feel like you're connected to that person and, and you know them as a person. They're not just like a talking head or a, just a robot that's, that's, Giving you the information that you need.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And at the same time, like I, I watched videos that were scripted that just like, you know, uh, like I would watch like some like really well professionally made video for mountain biking, and it just like wouldn't resonate from with me. It's just mm-hmm. like, mm, okay. That that was cool. Like that was a sweet roost. <laughs>
0: well, it's a lot of them are more like commercials these days, right? It's like a high, high gloss sort of like shiny package and, and what you're giving is, is definitely more real.
1: Uh, one of the things that i that irritates me is these how to tutorials that aren't really tutorials. They're just an advertisement and they really just gloss over any kind of information just because the company needs to put out some kind of content on their channel or website. <laughs> yeah. And they like kind of tell you how to do something yeah, just go around the turn. Look forward. <laughs> breathe.
0: Yeah, it's like everybody figured out what what you found in 2013, you know. They're they're finally figuring out SEO. They're, you know, they know how to write a good title and how to get people to watch, but they're kind of flooding the market with with low-quality videos.
1: Yeah, and it like it doesn't matter how good of a camera you use like in those videos. Like they could look stunning, but they have no quality, like there's no like informational quality in them. And that always like, kind of like that annoys me.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, we're going to take a break real quick, but when we come back, we're going to talk about keys to building mountain bike skills, urban downhill racing, and Phil's vision for a mountain biking wonderland. Stay tuned. You can't see me, but I'm wearing an awesome single tracks hat right now. It's actually the reason my voice sounds so amazing. Okay. So maybe not, but you never know until you get a hat for yourself. Go to shop.singletracks.com to find Singletracks hats, t-shirts, stickers, tubular headwear, and can coolers. Shipping is free within the USA, and your purchase helps support the Singletracks podcast. That's shop.singletracks.com, and thank you for your support and we're back. So obviously Phil, you're a very skilled rider. How did you gain your skills, especially before YouTube because it seems like that's a big part of what people are using these days?
1: Through BMX. I was fortunate enough to just uh, stumble upon dirt jumps.
0: Like literally, like you're just riding along and you're like, here's some dirt jumps. I'm going to try that.
1: Kind of in some ways. <laughs> I mean, I I my my parents and I would go on bike rides because we were living in California at the time. And my dad was an avid cyclist. I He would take me along rides with him in the baby seat. Mm-hmm. So I'd grown up being on a bike and liking that feeling. Before I'd go to class, like kindergarten class, since it's only a half day and I had an afternoon class. In the morning, my mom would take me to the dirt jumps. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, I can't think about many other parents who would do that. And like to me, it seemed totally normal.
0: <laughs> so you kind of, I mean, sounds like... I mean, you started really early, which I think is helpful for a lot of people. And, um, I mean, I guess you're essentially you're sort of self-taught. Did you have anybody that was coaching you or do you have any sort of like mentors or people you looked up to that you would ride with and sort of learn skills from them?
1: Yeah. I mean, throughout the years, like you would obviously, uh, I moved around a lot and I'd meet different people here and there who just teach you a little nugget of knowledge. Um, but I didn't have anyone along the whole process besides, Uh, my mom, dad, and sister who like really saw me grow as a rider. Mm -hmm. And most of it was just learned without realizing I learned it.
0: (laughs) Right. Which, which is probably why, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to pass those skills along too, like you said, and kind of explain how you do stuff. If you're just like, I don't know, I just do it. I just know, know how to do it. (laughs) I figured it out.
1: (laughs) Yeah. uh, I think one of the most important things that you cannot overlook is spending time on the bike yeah and i think as mountain bikers uh we tend to get into mindset of we need to get from point a to point b Mm -hmm. and uh especially once you become an adult there's a lot of like psychological stipulations about like what adults uh the role as an adult is in society and what adults shouldn't do and so adults don't really play we we make time for fitness or a mountain bike ride. Right. But like, you know, going around in a parking lot, look, making a fool of yourself (laughs) kind of like is weird in today's society.
0: Yeah. Or I mean, I look at it a lot of times I find myself thinking like, this is a waste of time. Like I'm just wasting time. I didn't get a good workout in, or I didn't, you know, do X number of miles. And so it feels like kind of a failure and Yeah. I think, I think as adults, we lose track of that. Whereas kids see it as more of like a learning experience and and maybe weirdly they can see like more of the long-term benefit of that than adults can.
1: Yeah. I don't even think kids see it as a learning experience. I just think it's like, I don't want to be stuck in the house. (laughs) I've played call of duty a hundred times. I'm bored of that. I just want to go do something else. Mm -hmm. Oh, here's, this thing, this kid's jumping a bike. I want, I want to know if I can jump my bike too. Yeah. I honestly, I don't think, I mean, some kids are super uh, focused, but I think a lot of kids just like see it as fun and like, they don't really think, like see how much time they've actually invested in it. <laughs> yeah. So I, if you look at it from like uh, the Malcolm Gladwell kind of like 10,000 hours thing, uh, you know, whether you want to, you agree with that kind of uh, his notion or not, I I spent a lot of time on the bike as a young kid. Mm -hmm. And I think if you spend a lot of time on a bike, trying different things, pushing your comfort zone, you're eventually going to learn something.
0: Yeah. So let me ask you, I mean, do you think that people can just sort of watch your YouTube videos and and become better riders from that? Or how much more time do they need to be spending sort of actually putting stuff into practice than watching videos?
1: Yeah, that's a, a really good question. I would say people would be way better off spending a million hours in a parking lot just dorking around, having a attainable goal in mind than they would be to watch my videos, if I'm being quite honest.
0: Yeah, but but at the same time, I mean, they have to be inspired. They have to have sort of a reason to be dorking around in that parking lot.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I do think where videos come into play is, say you've been out there forever, you've been trying something and you still can't get it. Mm-hmm. I think that's when the videos come into play, helping identify where you might be struggling or why you might be struggling at a particular thing.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, that's me totally. I, I was trying to fix something on my washing machine at home and I, I had the whole thing like <laughs> taken apart. And then I was like, I got stuck. I was like, shoot, like, I don't know what I'm doing here. So that's when I finally pulled up the YouTube video and bam got it back together.
1: <laughs> it's amazing what you can learn through, uh, just a little bit of YouTubing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. We live, we live in amazing times. I wanted to ask you about another one of your videos uh, that you posted It was you raced in Columbia, one of these urban downhill races. And for those who haven't seen them before, these are usually, um, held in, in a town that's on a Hill. That's got a lot of like narrow streets and stairs and things. And essentially, it's a downhill race through a city. And I always love watching those videos. Uh, I'm a sucker for urban mountain biking. So I wanted to ask you what that experience was like.
1: It may have been the single most nerve-wracking race I've ever done.
0: Yeah. Even before beforehand, like leading up to it, were you nervous?
1: Yeah, because you don't get that many practice runs. And you're, you know, I, I grew up riding on like street BMX at the same time as I was racing. And so mm-hmm. I knew how concrete felt when you crashed on it. <laughs> but in BMX you're not going that fast. Now yeah. here you're going downhill and you're probably going to be trying to gap some things if you're trying to be competitive mm-hmm. and if you make a mistake it's going to hurt really badly.
0: Yeah. And you've got big crowds I mean the whole way down. Does that make you nervous as well?
1: It made me nervous in a new way. I for the first time ever I was worried about hitting somebody in the crowd. Oh, yeah. Because it's kind of like, you know, group B rally back in the day where people <laughs> would like crowd the course. They would be like hanging over the railing. And so, you know, in a normal mountain bike race, you would have some course marshals, especially at the bigger ones, telling people, "Hey, get back, like, you know, like don't crowd the course, yeah. but here uh, it, it was essentially lawless in many ways. So <laughs> you had like, a bunch of enthusiastic fans all trying to get a better view of the course. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, you're also doing some things that you're pretty confident you can do, but you also know that there's a good chance that you might screw up. Yeah. And, uh, so you're a little bit worried about hurting the people in the crowd because they're right there.
0: Yeah. That's interesting.
1: And so for me, like my fears were confirmed within my like first nine seconds of my first practice run.
0: You hit somebody?
1: No, well, no I did not hit anybody. That's good. I, I did crash though.
0: Yeah. I saw that in your video. Was that from the race or was that from your practice run?
1: So, there was two crashes I had from that weekend. There was a crash in my first practice run where right off the bat, you had a bunch of stairs you had like mm-hmm. like ten stair sets or so, and like you know they'd go like five steps, three steps, ten steps, three steps like it was like completely yeah. uh irregular, but towards the bottom, you'd have enough speed where you could potentially gap over uh stair sets mm-hmm. and land on the next set and I was there to race, so I wanted to podium and so i was trying to find the fastest way down the the hill or the stairs (laughs) (laughs) and i had seen uh helmet cams from previous year of people gapping a certain like stair section so i was like okay it's my first practice run i haven't practiced this but i know i'll have enough speed Mm mm-hmm and I only get like two practice runs. Yeah. I'm going to do this, my first practice run, just to get the jitters out of the way and just get this over with. Yeah. And so I gapped the first set, gapped the second set, and then my rebound compressed or my suspension compressed and my rebound shot me over the bars as I still had one more set of, set of stairs to go before I got to the street.
0: Oh, yeah,
1: And so I, you know, like just went over the bar straight to like my face and Oof. it was a really hard impact. Yeah, I didn't break anything. <laughs> my arms swelled up to the size of like my leg Ooh. and I was really concerned. I did break anything, but the swelling after a week went away.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I don't know what I did to it. I definitely like, stressed it out quite a bit.
0: Yeah, it was not happy.
1: But that that was not exactly the way I wanted to start my first run. Yeah. And I still had to rest a course to try some gnarly moves on. Right. One which was honestly more gnarly than that one that I had crashed on. Jeez. Yeah, I I think that that crash took me down a few notches.
0: <laughs> yeah. I bet would would you do it on a Walmart bike?
1: No way. <laughs> <laughs> there were people there doing it on hardtails and whatnot. And Because uh, like they invite a lot of local Colombian uh riders, a lot of uh Peruvian riders, some of which who have access to good support and some of them don't have the greatest access to mm-hmm. support. So they're not doing it on Walmart bikes, but they're they're doing it on jankier bikes and they're like doing pretty well. And it kind of again puts things into perspective. Like, hmm, maybe I don't need this super expensive bike.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. So we talked in the beginning about your start in mountain biking and your racing career. Are you still racing or is making videos sort of your your full-time or your main focus right now?
1: It's my main focus. This year, I didn't do any races and it's actually the first year that I have not done any races. Hmm. And I will do some races again in the future, but It's, you know, it's something I'll do for fun and obviously I will still be competitive because you never lose that drive. Yeah. But, you know, I've kind of come to acknowledge the fact that I probably won't get on the podium.
0: Hmm. Well, I mean, right. That takes a lot of, a lot of focus and dedication, which... Seems like with your YouTube stuff and things, you don't you don't really have the time to do that anymore.
1: Yeah, and I, I never was one for training. I, I did very little training when I was competitive. But now if you want to be competitive, you have to train quite uh rigorously.
0: Hm, yeah. Do you have any sponsors that are supporting you through your YouTube channel? Is that, is that like a different thing than getting race sponsorships or have you found sort of parallels to that?
1: Yeah. So that's been a really interesting experience. I've, uh, it's been a weird kind of, uh, transition and I would say I have not taken advantage of my, like my position.
0: Yeah. Or your contacts. I mean, I'm sure you have a lot of contacts from racing and people know you in the industry. Um, but this is something that's different for a lot of them. I'm sure they're like, wait, YouTube, like why, why does that make sense for our brand?
1: Yeah. And uh, so I actually didn't have that many contacts from the industry because I'm a pretty quiet person. I always sucked at like selling myself as a (laughs) racer. Like I I can go out there and give you a good result, but I was never one to be like, Hey, can you, uh, you know, help support me? Um, and so when I was racing, I was never getting any kind of money or anything. And so this year was the first time I've gotten a little bit of money from one company. Uh, I've been working with Tasco. Okay. And so we came to an agreement, nothing like lucrative or anything, but enough to you know help pay for some bills. Mm-hmm. But as far as my other sponsors, I haven't really figured out uh, a good way to transition. Because like, I didn't know how to ask like, hey... I am now kind of not racing anymore, but I do have this other really cool thing. Would you like to to together there? And so as of right now, I'm working with an agent who um, used to work for pink bike and he's very knowledgeable on this kind of topic. And so I'm working with him trying to get sponsors. And Hmm. so I, I'm a lot more optimistic with where the future is Mm -hmm. and I'm also the kind of person, like, I don't want to like, uh, take the biggest paycheck to necessarily. Mm-hmm. I just want to have enough money where I can do all the cool things that I'd like to potentially be able to do. Obviously, feed myself, but I would rather ride something I like versus something that I'm getting, that I'm riding just because I'm getting paid to ride.
0: Right. Right. So you're not going to accept any Walmart sponsorships anytime soon.
1: Probably not. (laughs) Puffy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Although those guys are, they're making a name for themselves in Arkansas, it seems like for sure. So that's interesting.
1: You know what? I I have to say with, you know, the competition with like Amazon, it's made me kind of rethink my uh, perspective of Walmart. And like, these are like kind of two big companies going head to head at this point Mm -hmm. where it's like, I still don't see Walmart as like this, you know, benevolent company and they never will be, but I, I kind of look at them a little bit as doing a little bit more good in some, I, I don't, I don't like, I don't, I don't like that term.
0: Well, at least for mountain biking, I know I'm with you. I, I feel the same way and I feel like they get a bad rap sometimes. I mean, they, they obviously though, they never reached out to you and said, Hey, take down that video. You're making fun of us or anything, right? I mean, they. They seem to be okay with that kind of stuff.
1: Maybe I went to my spam folder and I never checked it. <laughs> but um, you know, like you, you can also make the argument because I have heard some bad things about some of the like descendants of uh, the Waltons. So, but that's that's a completely different subject.
0: That's right. People are people. Cool. Well, so. You know, speaking of, of funding and grand visions, um, I read on your website, and maybe this is a little out of date, but but you you said your ultimate goal is to open what you called a mountain biking wonderland, and you kind of hit on this again at the beginning. But what is your vision for this? You said you you as a as a younger rider, you went to Woodward, um, which seems to me, I mean, to me, that's kind of that's my vision of a mountain bike wonderland. I mean, is that kind of along the lines of what you're thinking, or What is your your vision?
1: Yeah, so I've had many different thoughts of what I'd like to do because it could take multiple different forms. Um, And so I would say my experience at Camp Woodward definitely has influenced what I'd like to see uh, pretty heavily. Mm -hmm. At the same time, so just like in the uh, sense that I say – I don't think – I think people would benefit more from going out and practicing a certain skill mm-hmm. um, than necessarily watching my videos. I think you could benefit a lot from having the right facility to learn something safely and build up confidence before taking it out to the real world.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: And that that's one thing that's on my mind. I'd really like to make a really, like, beginner-friendly, advanced rider-friendly uh, skills facility where – essentially, you wouldn't even need a a coach to tell you what to do. It'd be kind of intuitive enough where it's like, all right, I'll start in small, I'll go up to medium, I'll go up to the larger one. And okay, now that I'm on this, you know, I'm doing this large, like rolling that's made out of wood. Now I can go outside and do a similar size rolling, but now made out of rock.
0: Yeah. Well, that's what I loved about your mini ramp video. And I mean, dude, you should just, you should just make those, have somebody make those for you. You put like your mustache logo on them and, and you sell them, right? Like, I mean, that's, that's perfect. That's exactly what people need. And it, it complements sort of what you're doing with the videos and everything like I, that inspired me a ton for sure. Like for, especially for me and for my kids too. Um, so yeah, it seems to be a good fit for your vision.
1: Yeah. And the other thing is I obviously, you know, as a, a rider who's done a lot of building, I really enjoy the creative process of building stuff. And I like just making like these really cool, almost pieces of art, whether it's from art in perspective, like, Hey, that's really fun to ride or Hey, that's really fun to look at. And so I think a mountain bike park would be a fun fusion of everything. Yeah. Um, And not to mention now that I'm in Vermont and there's snow outside, I probably won't be riding a whole lot um, unless I travel. And so for me, there would be a huge component of having something like Rays, which is an indoor mountain bike park and absolutely phenomenal. And I'd like to uh, incorporate some of those elements in a mountain bike park as well.
0: Yeah, that's cool. What are, I mean, what are some of your favorite places to go that sort of almost get there, but are not quite sort of what you're thinking?
1: I, I would say Highland Mountain Bike Park.
0: Yeah, that was one of your videos I think I saw with with you and Seth. Seth was trying to do a a backflip or something, right? And they have like a foam pit?
1: Yep. Yeah. So Highland is a very condensed version of maybe a little bit of a fusion of Whistler and Camp Woodward in some ways because they offer summer camps and they have like a foam pit and those kind of things. And they have all of the big drops and stuff that you would uh you might see at Whistler, but it's a tiny mountain like I don't know if it's any more than a thousand feet in elevation. It might not even be a thousand feet in elevation, so it's this tiny- tiny like family run business, and I've been going there since like the second year it was opened the first like real year it was opened, and just seeing their attention to detail with building trails and uh catering towards trying to get new riders into the sport. To me, like it's it's a really cool mountain and I really like what they're doing.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. Well, thank you Phil for joining us. Um I've learned a ton and really enjoyed getting to know you. People can find your videos on YouTube. Just search up Skills with Phil and his channel will come up. Be sure to subscribe to Phil's channel to get the latest. And to get the latest from single tracks, be sure to join our email list or follow us on Facebook. We'd love to keep you up to date on the latest mountain bike news. That's all we've got this week. Talk to you again next week. Peace.